Hello, welcome to From the Platform episode 8. I'm Tom and this is Naomi. Hi. This episode is about the levels of abstraction applied to head coverings. If you haven't heard the podcast on the levels of abstraction, I recommend you go back and listen to that. So we're using the levels of abstraction to deal with head coverings because I think it's useful to help us be analytical of where we are at. It, it helps us be self-aware of the level that we're talking at so that we maybe catch ourselves jumping about all over the place. We catch ourselves when someone brings in a point or a part of an argument that we sit there and we talk in that space about that particular point rather than jump somewhere else to a different level of abstraction. And so basically it's a study tool. It's a discussion tool and a study cool, yeah. tool. Yeah, you can do it when you're um, when you're doing your own personal studies as well. So you mm -hmm. know that you don't avoid things. But also as you're having discussions, you can hear when other people are talking at what level they're talking at. So you can stay with them where they are talking or you can follow them if they jump around as well and maybe bring them up on it and say, okay, you've gone through a lot of different areas there let's focus on this one about this part of the text or this greek word or this um, idea that you have about cultural context mm -hmm. maybe ha hold things down a bit so it's inspired by the jonathan hyatt moral matrix and we both found that's really really useful because when you're having a discussion or part of a big group discussion it's really illuminating because you can go oh look that person's talking about this and of course that person's bringing up that point because it appeals to their authority that person it's their fairness that person it's their sanctity mm. ideals and it's really really illuminating and it helps you to kind of guide discussions and have your own discussions so yeah. that's what you're hoping that your own levels of abstraction yeah this isn't my idea this is um jordan b peterson so did you invent meta macro relative and micro they're kind of my labels for something that he he doesn't really label right, particularly okay. well for an idea that he came up with and like a true casadelphian you've gone for the greek well oh done. yeah didn't even know it <laughs> so basically you want you, oh, yeah, you put together your your model in the last podcast so in this one the idea is you want to apply your model to a topic and you've gone for head coverings. I've got a few more things to say about the model as well that have occurred to me. Okay. Whilst Go ahead. putting this one together. But could you first just recap on the levels for me and on how you understand them? Okay, as I understand it. So the first one is well, I would go micro first, because that's mm -hmm. when you look at something and then you look at the Greek or Hebrew and you look at lexicons and you look at how the grammar might have worked originally so you're looking into the kind of minutiae of actually of kind of like the study of it so if you're looking at a, a point yeah you'd look at what the original words meant and all that kind of stuff and then you've got relative would be the next one which is when you look at a passage in the bible and you would think about culturally how it would have been understood at the time and now the kind of things we bring to it with our modern culture and our kind of interpretation i guess that's much more subjective yeah bit. well there's the supposed original relative cultural context to it and then there's also our own relative layer that we can bring to it yeah so it depends or there could have been somebody else you know 100 years ago who had their own 
upbringing and background that they brought to the text. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yeah, so it's subjective. Uh, the next one is macro. So that's the, would you say it's the face value meaning of the story? Yeah. So, like, the Good Samaritan, it means be good to everyone, even if they're your enemy. Well, you're Jesus looking at what the text saying. says. You know, so the, the the macro is there was a man who went to Jericho and he got robbed. And, like, that's fairly straightforward. That's what it's telling you. And do you have any interpretation whatsoever in that sec- in that bit? Well, everybody's macro layer is already an interpretation from a bunch of translators who have translated the micro layer to put the story together and present it in English. And passed it through their own relative interpretation. Yeah, yeah. So, got, yeah, so... Mm, okay. So macro is basically the story, yeah. the story, which is more objective, but not really... Um, as you can as be more can objective be. about it because you can't particularly change yeah. it. As in it's more objective but not completely objective. Yeah, yeah. And then meta is to do with like the meta narrative um, about when you read the story of the Good Samaritan that would then fit your meta narrative of this is like the idea of the new covenant where Jesus got rid of the old eye for an eye type rules and is now giving you these radical laws of kind of love and forgiveness and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. So that would be a meta-narrative that you would um, fit yeah. the good Samaritan Yeah, it's not explicit into. in the text, but it rises out of it because it joins in with maybe a chorus of other texts that are saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. Did I get it right? Yes, full, full marks. Thank you. So one thing I found as we're going through this podcast and have been writing it is that at each level questions arise um, especially if you're in a discussion with somebody say somebody presents their meta-narrative to you about how head coverings fits into the whole paradigm of scripture this is especially true if it doesn't resonate with yours you're going to maybe ask in your head or out loud on what authority and with what understanding have you come to that meta-narrative mm-hmm. you're going to want to know what verses they base it on you're going to want to know how they maybe navigate around alternative ideas that I might have heard. Okay, so you're going to have questions about their understanding. Do they fully understand this text in the same way that you do? Mm-hmm. And those are the sort of so, questions. Sorry, that when are someone ask. tells you their macro thing, those are the questions you would have about meta, it. When someone tells you their meta. sorry, yeah. All right, okay. Okay, so that's someone's going to come to you and go, "Well, I think head coverings is all about this," mm-hmm. and you might say, "Well, that's interesting." I wonder how you've come to that conclusion is it valid now at the macro level and this is more about when you come to the text you're going to have questions about how the text harmonizes with itself with other passages that are similar on a similar topic um, how it harmonizes with your worldview how you think the world works and how god works in the world you probably have a meta narrative already and you're trying to get the text to harmonize with that mm-hmm. or those are the questions you're asking you're, you're asking the questions how does this harmonize with itself with other passages and with my worldview my meta narrative and in the podcast we will kind of list as many questions as we can around 1 Corinthians 11 about where the sticking points are for us And at the relative layers, because things become increasingly more subjective and because we're more dependent on what has been discovered and written and established by professionals across various fields, 
we're going to be asking questions at the level of like validity how how much can i trust what this scholar says about the culture at the time how many scholars agree with him who doesn't agree with him or her so the relative is huge isn't it because actually it's a it's a complete minefield and it depends on how easily influenced you are or what your critical analysis skills are like Mm-hmm. and just awareness of your own bias. Yeah, because some people, you know, you, you go, oh, I, I heard this thing on YouTube or I heard this thing on the Discovery Channel and for, for some people that's fine and we can you can believe that. For other people that's like, well, that's just like sensationalist mm-hmm. TV documentary stuff and they want to kind of beef it up a bit and it's probably not going to be particularly accurate. And yeah, there's all sorts of YouTube videos or like blogs out there and some even some like people who have scholarly credentials that are very fringe in their field. And most of the rest of the um, scholarly consensus is not with them. So the question might be, should we go with what the majority of scholars think, the scholarly consensus? Or are we able to hold up the work of more fringe scholars or Internet bloggers or things we heard in Discovery Channel? because they harmonise with our worldview. Sometimes within any lecture, but sometimes within Christophian lectures, you get some pseudoscience and some stuff that is said on the platform because it makes it backs up the point. And that maybe that's the only reason why. Mm-hmm. But we, as, as human beings, that's what we do. Like, psychologically, we cling to the things that harmonise with our worldview. Yeah, we're sort of made to recognise patterns. Mm-hmm and link everything together. So, for example, I can't walk into the attic and go, oh, my goodness, what's that black thing in the corner? Okay, that's the guitar. What's that thing there with squares on it? Oh, okay, that's a drawer. What's that white thing? Oh, it's a sheet hanging up. I can't go through and analyse everything. I just have to go upstairs and just call. I know what all these things are. They're patterns that I know. They're things in my house, and I can just get on with talking to Tom and recording this. Whereas if you have, like, autism or something and everything is unexpected and you can't formulate Mm. those patterns, it's all terrifying and it's not a functional way to live Mm. so in a similar way your brain gives you a a belief system yeah and it'll stick to things and go okay that makes sense to me because that that means i don't have to change anything yeah because to change stuff is horrifying it's absolutely yeah yeah, it's really disturbing to have cognitive Mm -hmm. dissonance so your brain does everything it can to prevent you from having cognitive dissonance so that's not a light thing to say like so we're talking about so are we still talking about the relative level yeah, relative and micro levels. Okay. Surely meta is your belief system, though. Well, yeah, so you have your meta belief system at the very top. Mm-hmm. But changes in the relative or the micro level are the things that can upset the top level stuff. They ripple up. Oh, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, it's, so everything it's, serves the meta level. Yeah, it's that's easier sure. for you to pick the micro and relative things that suit your meta narrative. Yeah. Because that means you don't have to change your meta narrative. Because mm-hmm. that's the big thing. So our brains are programmed to find stability, and so we will be far more likely to choose some badly researched, poorly sourced information that supports our thinking than some well-attested scholarly consensus that makes us have to rethink everything. And because we invest a lot in these issues, the things that don't harmonise with our worldview are less likely to be embraced due to the other changes we would have to make in order to accommodate them. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of questions that are, arise out of exploring it in this kind of a way. And what we'll do now is we'll go on to the levels in relation to head coverings and see how they 
work in practice, basically. So uh, what are some of the narratives around head coverings? I've got two that I've kind of formulated here. They'll come under more scrutiny as you look at the layers beneath them that underpin them. And we'll go into that in more detail. But for now, here's like a broad and very crude idea of two polar meta narratives that this pa passage would sit in. Um, and, you know, just note that an individual's meta narrative is going to be far more nuanced than either of these. So I've put down as narrative one, this. God has set an order of primogenesis in the making of man first and Eve as his helper. Man is made in the image of God and reflects his glory. Woman is in the glory of man. Her hair reflects man's glory. Since God should be the only one glorified, she should cover her head so that a man, who is the glory of God, is exalted. Christ, as a man, is the head of all men and therefore all women too. He gives glory to God in all that he does and so that's how it should be portrayed in our worship service. Okay, narrative one, that one's. Narrative two. Jesus spies out areas of social inequality, misuses of power and privilege, and turns them on their head, reflecting what God does by regularly using the second son or younger and even the small nation of Israel to be his message bearer or chosen one. In doing this, he regularly insists on filling valleys and bringing mountains low, superseding the old order with a new creation. Paul continues in this levelling of power and privilege in establishing the new creation in Jesus' church. The first Corinthians passage is, slash must be, an example of this, and how has been buried under the culture of the time that we must learn to understand. Okay, two narratives, mm -hmm. probably quite polar. They pick up um, on the moral matrices in quite a big way. The first one... It's based on the strict order that you must be loyal to. The order begins with God at the creation, so it means it has an ultimate authority. And we see Paul appealing to that. Uh, if there are things that we don't understand in this passage, then Paul's own authority, where he just says, this is what we do, do it, trumps that. And also we'll find out fully in the kingdom anyway. So mm -hmm. any inconclusive things in 1 Corinthians 11 can be dealt with in that way. The second narrative is concerned about care and fairness and how the Bible often turns the order of things on their head as a way of waking us up to the very real and current examples of injustice we're facing now. So this is a view that looks for and is open to more nuance in the text in order to find an answer. Now, both narratives are probably to some degree aware that they don't have the complete picture through a surface reading of the text. And so to make the passage harmonise with the meta-narratives, both examples will look for confirmation, facts, insights that can back up their views. Okay, so moving down to the macro level, discussion around what the biblical text says on the surface, so only taking things from the Bible here. In a biblical context, we understand that Paul has lived in Corinth for one and a half years, it's a big economic centre of the Mediterranean and it has huge ethnic diversity. We get that from Acts chapter 18. After Paul moves on, reports come back to him to say that it's all gone wrong and this letter kind of addresses what's gone wrong at Corinth. He deals with divisions, sexual misconduct, issues with food, the gathering of people for worship and the resurrection. 
all like topics that people have gone awry on. Mm -hmm. And we have to remember that he is contravening in particular those who wanted to enforce Jewish regulations and indeed Jewish ethnicity upon Gentile converts. Paul takes each of these issues and applies the gospel to it. And chapter 11, our chapter, fits into the gathering for worship section, uh, where there are many appeals to not distract from the teaching at hand with interruptions and to be unified in worship and in the sharing of the memorial meal in a decent and proper way. So that's all like stuff that you can glean from the, the text itself, from the overall context of the, the, the letter to the Corinthians and what we know from other parts of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Okay. So sorry, we talk about macro at the moment, mm-hmm. just literally what it says. Yeah. Okay. In Corinthians 11, Paul is not telling men or women to be silent, but to appropriately adorn their heads when praying or prophesying. Uh, and then I got a quote here from Steve Cox's recent article on head coverings. And he says, to break down chapter 11 into its component arguments is slightly arbitrary. There are not really eight separate points in Paul's argument, but a flow of argument that begins and ends with the bookended arguments of maintaining the traditions, like he says in verse one, and this idea that we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God at the end. So it's like bookended by these, like, just stick to what I'm saying, basically, just kind of... Paul's laying down his authority and saying, look, yeah, and this we, is how we've done things. Mm. This is what my traditions are that I've passed to you. It's bookended by this kind of idea. Go on, what are you going to say? It's interesting using the words traditions and practices, isn't it, to a church that was so young? Mm. Like, it's it's a... Yeah, and I wonder sort of what's the what's the original meaning of that? Because it, it can't be like traditions and practices in the way we think of them, because that suggests something that's been very long-standing. Yeah, I wonder if tradition, again, in the English, we get that sense from tradition, but yeah, maybe yeah. wouldn't from the Greek. Yeah, yeah. So kind of what it really is that he's referring to there, because he's not really talking, is he talking about Jewish practices? Like, at the time, do we know much about what Jewish men and so women So you're did? jumping down a level here I to know, relative and macro. So we'll come to that. But for now, we're just looking at what it says. Okay? Yeah, carry on. It is worth noting here, however, in light of what Naomi's just said, that we do come to the text with our own assumptions already. We have our own centric layer in place, which is relative to us, as opposed to being relative to the people at the time or relative to another day and age. For me, that is what is known as a weird context. Western, industrialised, educated, rich, democratic. And we have to be aware of that. That's the relative level, centric to us, that we've been brought up with and that we're bringing to the text. If you were in another country, a different socioeconomic status, a different race, then you'd also bring your own life to the text and interpret it through that lens. I guess there's nothing wrong with that, actually. The Bible can be empowering no matter what background you have. But in terms of maybe trying to find something factual or that something concrete rather than subjective is to go and say, okay, well, what did this mean to the first century uh, Christians that it was immediately written to? So what Paul does is he outlines a hierarchy, God, Christ, man, and then woman. Paul makes statements about the honour associated with men and women's covered or uncovered heads. Paul appears to make an argument from the order of creation and the angels. 
mainly that man was made first and then woman second. And the reader should also note that Genesis chapters 1 to 3 are used heavily by Paul. They are very important to him and they should be cross-referenced. There's an argument from nature, which I've put in quote marks. Men with long hair are a disgrace. Women with their heads uncovered might as well have shaved heads. Uh, Paul also then seems to balance these statements with this next set of verses, which says, Nevertheless, in the Lord... Woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Which is interesting, because he seems to be setting up an argument here, and then he throws in this other thing, which kind of is maybe balancing what he's saying. So what are the two points you're talking about there that seem to counteract each other? That Paul is saying there is a hierarchy from Genesis... And also nature shows you that there is a way of, of appearing in worship. Nevertheless, in the Lord, though, he balances that with the idea that woman's not independent of man and nor is man independent of woman. And this ties in with some of the other things that Paul says. Paul not only says that a husband has authority over his wife's body, which we might expect in the first century, but also says that the wife has authority over the husband's body. And it should be noted that Paul, in the wider context of his writings, has a lot of empowerment for women. He calls them things like co-workers, apostles and deacons. So it's mentioned in J.R. Daniel Kirk's book, Jesus Have I Loved But Paul, that the flow of Paul's argument seems to set up natural creation, Genesis creation, and then say this nevertheless in the Lord statement. So I guess this is our first question, which maybe takes us into the next level of relative and macro, is this question of, is Paul superseding natural creation with creation in the Lord? Mm. So he lines up natural creation and says, this is the way that you know men and women were made. Nevertheless, in the Lord, which is like your new creation now, mm-hmm. man is not independent of woman and woman is not independent of man. And you get that maybe from the structure, the flow of the argument, looking at the macro. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the, probably the first point that I've made there amongst all of that that is potentially debatable. And so that leads us into the other two layers. Mm-hmm. So conversely to this, though, of course, we have the other interesting passages where Paul tells women to be silent in the church and for women not to teach or have authority over man in the same letter. And this idea that we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God at the end. Just to interject here as well, while we're talking about this kind of particular debate, Jesus, of course, goes back to Genesis to firm up God's high standard in regards to marriage. So it's not like Jesus is undoing the first creation in order to establish a new order. He actually goes back to the old creation. So there's the argument that Paul is still doing that here with this passage. For a really good overview of Corinthians, you can watch the Bible Project's overview video. Pause now and watch that if you want to. Well, maybe we should do this first, actually, before we go into the next level, is, is what questions now arise from that passage can you then harmonize those questions by looking at the relative and the macro Mm -hmm. because that's what you're going to do isn't it well maybe you can take the reins actually Uh, what, what questions come out of this for you i guess because of the angels 
What? Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean? It's difficult to understand the relationship between long and short hair and head covered and not covered and glory and not glory, but then glory, but you cover it up and then glory, but you are allowed to have it. And then that, what it has to do with praying and prophesying. Yeah, sort of all that stuff. I mean, it's not something that I know much about, but on reading it, there's there's clearly stuff that I've missed or that is not freely available just on a macro reading of the Bible to understand. So, yeah, those would be my questions, basically. There is something that is either missing from the text to help explain what all those things mean or why they're relevant or something that I just haven't understood. Yeah, yeah. I think for me... Um I mean, I can understand as the concept, like a hierarchy, mm-hmm. and that God would be at the top, that, that then it would be Christ. And then, okay, maybe because of something, because of the order of creation, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure what and why, but man's better than, well, not better, but, and I think actually that's a really important point. I've had a slip of the tongue there, but I think mm-hmm. narrative one would not say that this means man is better than woman, but man is given a different role than woman. Mm-hmm. So that's important. So I'm not sure why man being made first puts them in a different role mm. to woman. Um, and the idea of sort of being head of is a bit sort of... There's an, there's an element of superiority about that. Yeah, I guess. There? And whether that's just something we read into it because the way we think of like being the head of something like the head teacher or something or the head something of, of, of a group of people. But kind of what that... What practically that's supposed to mean to us, like what we're, what we're supposed to understand from... Man is the head of woman. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of yeah, man. Like what? Yeah. What significance that's supposed to have? Yeah. Because it does. I guess there's other passages which do say things like, you know, woman should not have authority over a man or. or mm. So it seems to man. relate to authority. Yeah. Yeah. Um, however, there is that other one about mm. uh, a husband does not have a authority over his wife's body, and then there's also things that contradict within the text itself, saying that uh, a woman should have authority over her own head. You know, I'm not sure how that ties in with the rest of the argument. And like you've said already, this argument from nature that a man with long hair is a disgrace and a woman with her head covered, uncovered might as well have her head shaved. And he's talking as if that's absolutely obvious. Mm, um, yeah, yeah. Whereas for many cultures and eras, you know, while the, the Bible's been written, that's not necessarily obvious. Yeah. And there is something that seems a little bit conditional as well because he uses the word if... And if that would be a disgrace, then she should... Because he talks about a woman having her head shaved mm. and saying, and if that's a disgrace, then she should have her head covered. Now, as we're doing this questioning, I think it's important to highlight that these questions in and of themselves can already seem disrespectful in some ways. It's a bit of a barrage of questions, isn't it? And this critical analysis is quite uncomfortable for some. But again, when this happens, say if you're um, receiving questions about a topic in this kind of a way... Again, it's important to listen and reflect back to that person, their questions. You might be finding it uncomfortable, but it's good to really listen. And when you're reflecting back, say those questions back to them so you can internalize them yourself. Kind of ask yourself, how much am I just ignoring these questions? Or I just want to push them aside because it doesn't fit with my meta-narrative. Someone with this many questions has obviously thought about it for a long time and looked for an answer. So... Don't just jump to your answers that maybe they've already explored. You want to listen first. And in fact, from a practical point of view, this is probably the place that you'd encounter or start a head coverings conversation. When the text doesn't neatly tie together, 
people will have certain questions, especially young people. And so maybe it's here that you can ask the person where it fits into their overarching biblical narrative. You can start using some of the tools that we've explored, listening for the moral matrices and considering what sort of person they are and and why they're asking the questions. Okay, so um, here are some of the debates uh, around the cultural and historical context of 1 Corinthians. So what are we talking about now in terms of your model? Relative level. And the point of looking at this is that you're having a conversation with someone and if someone starts talking about relative things, kind of acknowledge and listen to them at that level and not just yeah. throw in what's your meta-narrative or your ideas about micro-meanings of words. Yeah. Because you'll be talking about different things. Yeah. Okay, so here are some ideas. One of them is that actually head coverings at the time were a signal as to whether you were sexually available or not. And so within the church, Paul is saying, let's not have that as a distraction. Everyone cover their heads because we don't want people praying and prophesying and then people like thinking... She's a bit of all right. Yeah. Um, and you can look at Marg Markowsko's blog about that who cites ideas from Bruce B. Winter, Roman Wives, Roman Widows. Um, tied into that idea is the idea of new women. So this was that in Roman society, it appears as though at this time, though, to complicate things, married women were kind of throwing off some of the social order of things and not wearing head coverings, mainly the higher class people. And Cynthia Westfall talks about that as well. Which but it's dubious whether that was even a thing. Yeah, this is the symbol of the veil in ancient Near East and today, subjugation or honour. That was a YouTube video that she, she had. One academic who goes against this says, In sum, the existence of the new woman, who was sexually promiscuous and upset the balance of propriety in Rome and beyond, is more a poetic fiction and a political smear than a historical reality. That was Lynn H. Kohick, Woman in the World of the Earliest Christians Illuminating Ancient Ways of Life. She had. Yeah, I'm, I'm putting these things out, and these are for you to go away and, like, do they convince you or not? Like, do your own research. I'm just putting some ideas out there. I don't want to um, exhaust the pros and cons of them. Now, one that I've heard before is the idea that Corinth had cult prostitutes and they would have mm -hmm. had shaved heads. And so that's where the idea of this being a disgrace comes from. However, uh, from uh, the first epistle to the Corinthians New International Commentary in the New Testament... It says, it was commonly suggested that short hair or shaved head was the mark of the Corinthian prostitutes. And he quotes Grosshide, whoever that is. But there is no contemporary evidence to support this view. It seems to be the case that one scholar's guess becoming a second scholar's footnote and a third scholar's assumption. Mm -hmm. And that's what I find with a lot of things. Is like, there's some, and this is where we have to be really careful. And you have to be aware of what you want to hear. Mm -hmm. It's like, Okay, that makes sense to me. It ticks my boxes and makes my meta-narrative kind of harmonise. But when you look a bit closer at things, you often find that um, actually, yeah, it maybe have been someone's guess, which became someone else's footnote, which became someone else's assumption. Yeah. And it's like, which, and the main thing for me about going into the relative and the micro is it's exhausting. Like you think you found stuff and then you like... Exhausting uh, and not exhaustive. Yeah. Hmm. Some other interesting things are that 
so this is a, a prayer that was recited in Jewish synagogues. So this just sets you up for what the people in Corinth in the synagogues would have been praying at the time. This is a common prayer, one of the three um, liturgies, where the men would recite a thanks that God has not made him a Gentile, a slave or a woman, at which point the woman in the congregation thank God that you have made me according to your will. So that's obviously like a something that was common within synagogues. A suggestion synagogues. of the way women were seen, yeah, and so talked about as well. Yeah, so that doesn't necessarily help us with any of our questions, but it, it kind of gives us a bit of an understanding of the thinking at the time. One idea that I was going to put in this podcast, but people have pulled me up on it as being extremely fringe and a bit ridiculous, is the <laughs> Greek physiology one. Now, it, And now, if you want to hear about that, just go to a party with Tom and he'll tell you all about it. <laughs> so... It is true that the Greeks considered the hair as part of the genitalia and that semen was thought to have been produced in the brain and drawn down the body. But but, but it was also known that, that women and men produced semen in the brain or some sort of like reproductive fluids and it got brought... I mean, down all you have to go into is there's some ideas about the way they thought about science that suggested that hair was very sexualized. And part of the reproductive process. Yeah. Yes. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I'll leave it at that. If you want to look into that one more, it's T.W. Martin. Um, uh, and the article is called A Testicle Instead of a Head Covering. It's very, it's very interesting. But as has been pointed out to me, uh, he does appear to misrepresent many of the comparative texts with his own translation and interpretations. Mm-hmm. So maybe one to steer clear of. Because he wants some clickbait. Okay, last one. Um, this is another quote from Steve Cox. I thought it was very interesting. Uh, it says, There is very little in 1 Corinthians that should be read without relating it to the main theme and cause of the letter, namely the culture clash between a Jerusalem-looking conservative group of Jewish Christians, the Cephas faction, and an Alexandria-looking liberal group of Jewish Christians, the Apollos faction, uh, which we know about. You know, mm-hmm. Paul mm-hmm. Um, mentions that. The use of Peter's Aramaic name Cephas is a blatant signal of identity with the mistake Peter made when he stopped breaking bread with Gentile Christians in Antioch and with the lobby of brethren from Jerusalem who put pressure on Peter and Barnabas to make that mistake. So that's what we looked at in um, mm. in the rebuke one, wasn't it? Um, likewise, the use of the name Apollos is a clear flag of solidarity, not just with Apollos, but with the liberal charismatic cosmopolitan synagogues we find in the works of Filio and the texts of Alexandrian Judaism. So they're all things that you can look into and, and dive into and think, okay, does this does this underpin the text and give us any answers to the questions that we have? Mm-hmm. I think it's worth noting. I'm aware that we just, we're trying to talk about head coverings objectively, probably not succeeding. Um, there's more to head coverings on meets the eye. It's not in any way a simple thing. And I think it's become almost like a barometer within Christadelphia, as in, say, a meeting or a group of people who are okay with not wearing head coverings is sort of the first defining thing on a sliding scale as it were like it's the first thing that kind of says women should have their head covered even if the kind of wider chapter context is very confusing like it literally does say that and if you want to just take literal statements out of the Mm -hmm. bible and apply them not that we do that consistently uh, as a side point so i think that gives the subject of head coverings added weight because i think it's a bit of a gateway thing Mm -hmm. into 
far more liberal waters, which are a bit bit scary. Yeah. And yeah. It, yeah. But also head coverings, particularly in more recent times when, you know, discussions around feminism is far more mainstream and it's not a kind of taboo or sort of weird thing to talk about. It does become slightly more... I'm trying to think what word to use, but it does become slightly, oh, you know, an era of, like, Handmaid's Tale and stuff like that. Women being told they should wear a head Mm, covering mm. becomes incredibly archaic and even has elements of, I don't know, like, slightly dangerous elements to it, doesn't it? You know, like, kind of what it harks back to. And I think that's just because in our current climate, it's a little bit... Oh, I don't really know what I'm describing here but Um, yeah i think there's definitely something to be said in head coverings is a very sensitive topic because i think people can see it as a gateway mm. to a sliding scale of yes kind of slipping ideas and not believing in the inspiration of the bible that's probably on the relative level but relative to our culture rather than the first century culture. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's, like, relative yeah, yeah. On, on that one. So you can take that relative level and you can swap it out for, like, 21st century Christians and go, head coverings, well, that's, nah, yeah, that's kind of maybe you look, you look weird and reminds you of the handmaid's tale and yeah. it's a bit, seems a bit sinister to some people. And you can swap it out for another culture in the, uh, I don't know, the 15th century where, it would be like, well, everyone wears a bonnet, so it's kind of like that's not really part mm. of the issue. Well, even sort of 100 years ago or less, everybody's wore a hat. Like yeah, because it was and really then sooty. and the deal was men you need to take it off when you come into church. Mm-hmm. But now in the last sort of even less than hundred years, no one wears a hat when they go out. And it's like all oh, women. By the way, you used to wear one all the time. You've got to remember to put it back on when you're in this specific place. Yeah, yeah. because someone two thousand years ago said, "Well, it's the practice that we do." Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And then you've got the micro-debates, the real nitty-gritty ones about the different words. Uh, yeah, and the micro-layer, I think, and maybe the relative layer, should come with a massive warning sign. It says something like... Here lies dragons. Yeah. To torment you. <laughs> None of us were there to hear or read those words with the fully integrated understanding of the time they were written or said. Although more and more comparative texts are being found, translated and understood... We, as lay people, will always be a long, long way from the fullest understanding of what mm-hmm. something means. We can only read what some other scholar thinks about it. So the first example here is kafile, which is man is head of the woman. Mm-hmm. Some people have put forward that kafile can mean source in a similar way to what Paul's talking about later on, where he says a woman came from man and not man from woman in the Garden of Eden. So, for example, Ian and Avril McAfee's book All in One, they say there's a considerable debate on the meaning and translation of head, kafile, in Greek. One group maintain the word means chief or ruler. The other feel that it means source or origin. And they also say, like, that can be true in English as well, because you can say the head of a river is where it, source comes from. Okay, So it kind of works in English as well. However, none of the lexicons will actually... They like say, well, no, it doesn't doesn't exist like that. Like, it doesn't get used in that kind of way. Okay. So, to to my liberal mind, it's like, oh, yeah, maybe there's a different way of maybe we just read that word wrong the whole time. Ha mm. <laughs> that's great. Let's go over it. And it's like, well, no, actually, you can't do that. <laughs> it's like, mm. and it's and you often find yourself going down one route and going, ah, no, dead end. Okay, back down another route. No, dead end. Mm. And if you're being honest, this is. I mean, you can just stop mm. there and be like, 
that ticks my box. Actually, I'm happy with it and I'll just leave yeah. it at that. And that's true yeah. for both sides of the argument. Mm. What were you going to say? And also for your own sanity. You kind of have to end somewhere. And yes. I guess hold things lightly. You don't want to be dogmatic about it, but you also kind of have to... I don't know, you have to find a balance, don't you? So Naomi and I recorded a bit about lexicons, which we've talked at the end of this podcast, if you want to listen to that as well. We found we were running out of time, so I've cut it from the main bulk of the podcast. Other micro ones are, does it mean husband, wife, or man, woman? Mm-hmm. There's exousia, which is, that is why a wife ought to have exousia on her head, because of the angels. And the word is heavily translated authority. But this is one of the examples where some translators have been a bit naughty, because they've got an agenda, some translations here go so far as to add a symbol of authority on her head. Mm-hmm. And like the symbol of is nowhere in the Greek. They've just added it in so that it ties in with the rest of what Paul's saying. So there's there's some unpicking that you have to do from the macro level within the micro. Exactly. Yeah, so it's not as well. the macro level isn't a sort of... No, unbiased. the macro level is just the amalgamation of a certain group of people's micro <laughs> yeah. um, understandings I mean it's going to be better than mine so that's mm-hmm. why we it's also why we use different translations to kind of get a broader mm-hmm. idea of things finally uh, angelos because of the angelos so in other places that word angels refers to human messengers does it actually mean human messengers or is it more of the divine like angelic messengers as we traditionally know them okay so I'm just going to stop here and conclude for this podcast and we're going to take this conversation forward in the next one I think the interesting thing that I've got from doing this podcast is realizing that we try and underpin our meta-narratives with our understanding of the text. The majority of the time, the text gives us everything we need to paint the picture and form our ideas. But in situations like this one, where it's less than clear, we often find ourselves going into areas that become less and less grounded in what we could call facts, I guess. They become more subjective. They become more on the cutting edge of scholarly thinking. So new ideas come in all the time and we have to think, okay, is this going to be factually accurate? What authority does it have? Is there a consensus among scholars that this definitely is what this means? And again, with the relative layer, from archaeology and comparative texts at the time, can we be sure that this was a practice that would have influenced Paul or not? And there's varying degrees of validity to these ideas. Some are very fringe, some are more mainstream and accepted, but we'll still have people saying, no, this isn't right, other scholars debating against that and that's the way the scholarly world works but it becomes kind of very challenging to then ground what we think about a text in any conclusive and concise way when it's all still kind of very much up for debate so there's two things here first is i hope this tool is still useful for compartmentalizing arguments and understanding where someone will be coming from in a debate that you can kind of park yourself in that area that domain listen to them and understand the topic they're talking about and what layer it's at but secondly to think about how we navigate our way through this do we spend the rest of our lives trying to shoehorn subjective material into the text 
Do we pretend to gloss over the problems with the text, pushing the pieces together that simply don't really fit? Neither of those seem like a perfect solution, really. And maybe this is where faith comes into it and where we try and be more spirit-led about it, thinking about the principles that, that arrive out of these passages. Because with history and language, you can't be objective. And with all this subjectivity, you'd certainly need some sort of faith in, in a God that guides you. Now, I'm not saying that this gives us a mandate to just do what we like and say, well, the Spirit's leading me here and I'm, I'm going to ignore this entirely or take that kind of mentality towards it. But equally, we can't just be like, well, the text definitely says this and therefore that's the way it is very literal reading of things and what i've been trying to think about as we go through this is the equilibrium the the balance that we can make in listening to each other and understanding the two points of view or or more than two points of view um and to hold things a little bit more lightly now obviously some people listening to this will think that they do have a full understanding of them and it does all make sense but Hopefully, if anything, then this podcast will give you a taste of what two 30-something Christadelphians are struggling with when they come to this passage. And, of course, I'd be very happy to hear any thoughts, any, any ways in which you can tie all this together and, and feel like, like it, it fits and harmonises. But as a community at large, it's very hard to be unified entirely when everyone comes to this a very different perspective so i'm going to leave it at that following on from this is our little bit about lexicons i hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll catch you next time and you have to ask questions in this layer about where do we get our understanding of the greek text from yeah and that's lexicons professional lexicons there are a few standard professional Greek lexicons. You can look up, there's the LSJ, the BDAG, the Lunida and the Swanson. And then there's a new one oh, called the Brildag, which um, people are getting excited about. You might come across Thea as well, but that's largely become obsolete. It's from like 1841. So these are all scholars who look at not just the Bible, but all Greek texts from around the same p- period of time to understand how that Greek word was being used and can give you a better idea of how it could be translated, mm-hmm. right? Looking at word usages across all Greek texts from the first century is a good start for understanding what a word means, but also comparing Paul's use of a word across his own letters provides more insight into kind of Paul's vocabulary mm. and how he was going to use things. So, can you explain what a lexicon is? What do you think I just said? I don't really know. I sort of know what a dictionary is, and I know what a thesaurus is, and I know what a concordance is but I don't really understand so a, a what a lexicon, lexicon is. is where scholars have taken Greek from across the Bible and all sorts of other Greek texts around that same time period mm-hmm. and they've looked and at and in the same place? Mm, I don't know not necessarily I don't okay. think um, but they've they've gone and they've looked at you know the word bacon and they've gone and seen within all the context what's it most likely to mean mm-hmm. what's it second most likely to mean so accordance is that but within the world of the bible yeah. and a lexicon is within the world of just linguistics just at the time yeah